Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Taha Lokanwala and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Ben Guttridge, Head of Fund Research at Bruin Dolphin. Many mature markets are so well covered by research analysts, it can seem hard to find a good opportunity that is well priced. But in one developed market, it seems that there are many hidden gems to exploit, or so says a fund manager that Taha has been speaking to. Taha, where are these opportunities? Uh, so we've been looking at Japan, and specifically we've been talking to Nicholas Price, who is manager of the Fidelity Japan Trust, uh, which is formerly known as Fidelity Japanese Values, for some of you that may hold it. Um, and according to Mr. Price, he says that only around 10% of the 4,000 stocks in Japan are covered by analysts, which for him, he says, you know, leaves some opportunities for him to find some, uh, some nice stocks. That's a big choice. And um, so there's thousands of Japanese shares. What particular Japanese shares does uh, Nicholas Price focus on? So it's a it's a multi cap trust. So he he covers, um, you know, he buys stocks across the spectrum, but he does have a bias towards the small and mid cap space with around 70% uh, of the trust invested in those. And uh, he likes he likes growth stocks. He likes the ones that aren't known by the market, but they're, they're growing, they've got revenue and they've been mispriced because people haven't realized the potential that, that, could, that could go on there. And how does he go about choosing which of these opportunities to invest in? Uh, so for, for Mr. Price, for him, he says this is the benefit of working in complete fidelity. They have their own um, kind of Asian-based research team, which covers a lot of the stocks themselves. So they go through looking at some of the potential and they have analysts and then he starts. That's his starting point. And then from then, he does some fundamental analysis. But he also spends a lot of time meeting companies. He said he has about 300 meetings a year, which is uh, quite a lot considering how many days you, uh, you have in a, in a year. So, uh, yeah, he's a busy man. But, yeah, the, he uses the kind of three-pronged approach there. He buys things that uh, he says are uh, underpriced. So, how long does it take these things to come to fruition? You know, typically, how long does he hold before um, you know he realizes a profit? So he takes he takes a very strict valuation kind of decision here. So he's looking for return on equity uh, of ten times, and he wants this within five years. So, but. With that, he also has quite a strict sell discipline. So what he does is that once it reaches the valuation that he has decided that it should be, he sells and he starts reinvesting those profits into different opportunities. And that's what keeps the cycle going in his trust. That's quite a specific way of doing things. So is it actually paying off? Uh, well, yeah, if you look at the last three years, it definitely has been. Um, obviously, Japan's been on quite a good run, but the, the trust NAV has risen 87%. Uh, and you compare that with only about 47% for the topics, which, which, uh, which is the main benchmark in the country. 47 is obviously good, but 87 is, uh, is quite a lot better. So. Okay. Now, I think, as I was saying, he seems to have a very specific way of doing things. And um, managers, I suppose, more widely are described as investing in a particular style. So how would you describe Mr. Price's style? It's it's very much the growth style. He's looking for companies that are going to be growing their revenue and growing their business over time, and that's what a lot of his analysis is focused on. Is finding out whether you know they're they're in the right sector at the right time and and aspects like that. So he's he's definitely on the growth side. There are elements of value with his strict sell discipline. So he's obviously set a, a benchmark price that he wants a company to get to. And that, and that is something you might find with value managers. However, he's definitely looking for growth companies. OK, and getting results. So can we conclude that growth is the best strategy for getting good results in Japan then? Uh, definitely not. It depends who you ask. So Japan as a market is, uh, some would argue at the moment, more leaning towards being a value kind of aspect. Yes, it had a low inflation and low economic growth for quite some time. That started to 
to change and that these are the circumstances which the value really comes to good uh, if you speak to the manager of the British Empire Trust who is also featured in this week's magazine uh, he says you know Japan is definitely a value market if you look at the composition of the topics index it's about 55% weighted towards value stocks at the moment so there's a bit of both but you know you can make money out of growth you can make money out of value in Japan Ben, how do you think the valuations of Japanese equities compare to those of other developed markets? Well, I don't think it's a slam dunk. I think there is, there's quite a lot of commentary that Japan is sort of standout cheap. It's very easy to eyeball that relative to the US. Uh, the US has traded a premium for some time. Um, but, you know, looking at broad valuations, we would say it's on the, it's on the cheap side. But, um, you know, it, it does merit that discount uh, relative to, uh, to, to global markets and certainly the US. But, uh, no, I think it's certainly interesting. Now, I think, as Taha said, there seems to be an argument for growth and for value in Japan. So, in your opinion, is Japan a better place for growth or value investors? Well, again, you know, I want to say things with uh, clear intent, but it is a it is a close one and it is a tough one to call. As, uh, as Taha was saying, you know, if if the economic conditions improve, you know, that should be good for value stocks. It should be good for the banking sector, uh, and it should be uh, it, it should have the sort of multiplying effect for consumer confidence and uh, and spending so you know the value sectors benefit from that but japan is a, a world leader in in automation in robotics that's certainly the growth part of the market and uh, that has been what's capturing markets attention really you know over the last 18 months it's been a, a, a you know a real on a tear that type of t- type of trade so sorry to not sort of uh you know to sit on the fence on this one I, we would favor growth um, we really think this technological disruption has plenty of room to run, uh, but the economic uh, recovery in Japan should still support some value. We'd lean into growth, but we wouldn't park value to one side. OK. And are there any other positive reasons to allocate to Japan at the moment? Well, the, the, the positive uh, reasons are the ongoing reform in Japan in terms of corporate culture, uh, there does seem to be a strive to focus on profitability. The sort of term zombie companies has been uh, labelled, levied at Japanese businesses in the past, um, you know, not really striving to invest and make uh, good, sensible decisions, more sort of interested in supporting each other uh, than really showing any dynamism. Uh, that has uh, seemingly changed. There is there is indeed an index in the Japanese market that uh, this, this, this index that if you can only qualify for if your return on equity, a measure of profitability, is high enough. And so it's a stamp of approval, if you like. And so businesses... Is uh, that the Nikkei 400? That's exactly yeah. it, uh, that uh, the businesses are trying to get onto, uh, recognising this, this this corporate change. If you're not on it, then you're clearly, you're, you're apparently not doing the right things as management. So that focus on profitability through corporate culture change, driven by the leadership, is uh, is a positive. Okay, I mean, that sounds really good, but presumably there are also risks to investing in Japan? Yeah, there are. I mean, what we would highlight, what we, a, um, a conversation we have a lot with investors is how they're getting their access to Japan. Often it's through hedged currency. Now, this is a relatively complicated topic, but it's an important one. Um, when, you're, when you're hedging your currency exposure, that means you're not assuming the uh, gains or losses from the yen. And it does tend to be uh, the opposite impact uh, in terms of stock market performance in the currency. When the stock market goes up, the currency tends to be falling. And when the currency goes up, the stock market tends to fall. And so we've seen that a lot of investors 
you know, have invested in hedged stock market funds. And, you know, when the stocks come under pressure, they haven't been bailed out by a strengthening yen. They've suffered uh, the stock market falls and haven't had any hedging from the currency. So when investing in Japan, you just need to know what you're doing with your currency and recognise that we're really quite there is the elevated levels of risk uh, by assuming a hedged currency position. Okay, something easier said than done. <laughs> I suppose in view of that, then, what kind of investors are Japan funds suitable for? Well, I mean, I think, uh, I think unhedged uh, Japan exposure, so that's when you're assuming the yen exposure, which is a nice hedge against falling markets, um, it would be suitable for any, any clients within a balanced portfolio. And um, there's certainly, as I've mentioned before, pioneers in robotics and automation. It's a great theme, uh, a long-term theme to be invested in. Japan is obviously, you know, part of the Asian business community, which, uh, you know, has its wobbles, but is a great long-term growth story. So, you know, and there is this corporate culture change. So the long-term prospects look good. Of course, in the short term, there could be subject to volatility. But uh, no, we'd see it's being suitable for most investors within the context of a balanced portfolio. As long as we've got a long-term investment horizon. Yeah, that, that would be the case with most equity markets, I would say, yeah. Okay. So on that note, are there any particular funds that you um, like to use of clients? Well, I mean, we like Nick Price as a as a fund manager. That's, that's a certain. Our preference in Japan, however, would be Bailey Gifford. I mean, they do seem to be the lead, one of, if not the leading fund manager when it comes to growth strategies across most asset classes, and it's no different in Japan. So, you know, supporters of their large cap, open-ended, closed-ended, um, a, a small cap uh, investment trusts and, and open-ended funds. So, yeah, anything with Bailey Gifford and Japan written alongside it would be well worth looking at. That is the growth theme uh, as a reminder. Are you concerned at all about the retirement of Sarah Whitley because she was obviously a key figure in the Japan team and stepped down at the end of April? So these great returns we've seen for years, I suppose it's questionable, you know, how much is down to her and if the new team lineup can continue to do it without her? I mean, that's a perfectly reasonable question. I mean, she has been a figurehead for their Japan franchise, uh, but, you know, the people Bailey Gifford bring in and the culture they've got there across the desks is very focused on this potential for growth. And I don't see the, the process changing really at all. And, uh, you know, we wait to see whether her contribution impacts things at the margin but you know if if growth continues to to do well i would expect bailey gifford to capture nearly all if not more than that uh despite you know, the loss of uh, you know a very important senior figure that no, nothing's really going to change in the way they hunt, hunt down stocks okay thank you ben some really helpful suggestions After months of political deadlock, Italy finally seems to be getting a government. After its pro-European president, Sergio Mattarella, and the Eurosceptic party which won the most votes in the March election, agreed on a prime minister and senior government ministers. And following steep falls, European markets seem to have bounced back. So Ben, is the crisis over? Can investors now relax on Italy and Europe? Um, Well, I think, yeah, a crisis has been averted but the drama shall continue uh i think they've appeased the president by putting in a few technocrats in the government not so explicitly eurosceptic and 
for now that averts the threat of a of a follow-up election which some had labeled as a referendum on the euro worth five-star movement league nord going to campaign on something more explicitly Eurosceptic. If they did and they succeeded, it would be much harder for the President to stand in the way of that type of government forming. As it is, they've diluted the uh, personnel in terms of that Euroscepticism, so we wait to see whether that dilutes their policy intentions. Um, There is certainly a need for more expansive economic policy uh, at uh, from from Rome. It's just the scale of that expansion that is going to cause the tensions between the EU institutions and uh, the Italian government because they will certainly want to do something more expansive than the, cover- the current rules permit. So for now we've avoided that uh, proxy EU existential uh, referendum, but there will be there are, the, the battlegrounds are sort of uh, are being laid and uh, plans are being laid, and there, there will certainly be more tensions. And this story has more to give, and sadly more volatility to offer markets uh, in in months to come. So, if it is going to be likely volatility in European equities, should investors avoid them? And if you already hold Europe funds, should you sell them? Well, I think it depends where you're you're starting from. I know investors won't be necessarily too bothered about benchmarks but you know we have we we at Bruin Dolphin have got an eye on a benchmark and we are currently underweight Europe so we're not we don't have a zero weight we haven't exited there uh, completely but we're overweight Japan we're overweight North America but we are underweight Europe so you can interpret that how you wish but we have less confidence in that stock market in part because of the political tensions but also in part that such lofty expectations had been set after a stellar 2017 in terms of European economic performance. We're not predicting a recession in Europe. Not li- well, we'll see how this story, particular story unfolds. But we've got good uh, good growth numbers coming out of Europe, but they're, they're much softer than they were in 2017. So that relative disappointment coupled with political tensions means we are uh, less convinced by the European story. Okay. Uh, that said, European markets obviously fell recently um, and although they've had a bit of a bounce back, um, have they recovered all their ground and are they possibly um, a value opportunity um, in view of the falls? Well, I, yeah, they haven't kept recaptured all of the all of that ground, and you're right. Yeah, it is a, a value opportunity. European markets are the one of one of the cheaper ones that are out there again relative to the US, but the 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 largest proportion of cheapness derives from the banking sector, and you know the Italian banking sector is really. Uh, to the behest of sort of sentiment and how this political story develops. And it could easily turn a little sour in the months to come. Whilst we've had a nice bounce, in the months to come it could turn a little sour. And if the Italian banking sector's under pressure, um, then it's hard to see the rest of the European banking sector performing. So that does look like the value opportunity. If it plays out nicely in in Rome, then this is a great trade. But, you know, that is there is some risk in that. That is is for sure. So... Let's say if you can take on that risk and think it's worth um, trying to play that, what funds would you suggest for getting exposure to Europe? Well, I mean, if you are feeling particularly brave or you are particularly well rehearsed in uh, European politics and you have a positive outlook, then GAM Euroland value is a great uh, is a great trade. It's certainly deep in the banking sector, and so that is uh, that is the more speculative, but could easily play out. Um, that 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 is the value trade. Uh, our preference for to, to hedge that or for long term sort of quality investing would be thread uh, thread. thread 
Threadneedle European Select, uh, David Dudding. That, uh, that, that would be our preferred strategy in Europe. Okay, thank you, Ben. A really useful roundup on the chaotic political and financial position in Europe. If you have children or grandchildren, you no doubt want to give them the best start possible, including financially, as younger generations face costs such as university tuition fees and increasingly expensive house prices. The obvious way to help grandchildren might seem to be an inheritance or even handing over cash while you're still alive. But Emma, you've actually been looking at a far less complicated way to help grandchildren financially. What is this? Well, quite simply put, Leonora, it's getting started early, investing for children or grandchildren from a very early age, perhaps when they've first been born. And that's just because, you know, young people have youth on their side and they can um, benefit from the power of compounding. And power of compounding has been called, you know, the eighth wonder of the world. Um, basically, the longer you invest without drawing on um, your returns or your interest, the bigger your pot you have to um, invest with grows and the the sort of more quickly exponentially it grows. So if you can, you know, invest for a very long period, as even 18 years or even longer, you can actually set aside quite a hefty amount of money to pass on to your children or grandchildren. Okay, so what sort of returns could an early investment for a grandchild make? Well, a one-off sum of £3,600 put into a pension when your child or grandchild is first born. So that's just one-off, you know, one-off mm. payment. Um, the annual maximum. Yeah. The annual maximum mm. that you can put into a pension. That can grow to more than £52,000 by the time that they reach 55, which is the earliest they would be able to access, you know, in a pension. Um, but that's just from a one-off. Um, and if you wanted to fund a pension with £3,600 a year for the first 18 years of a child's life um, and not pay anything further into the pension, by the time they get to age 65, they could have a pot of £1 million. OK. Now, you mentioned a pension. So you say pensions for old people, not kids. Why would you open a pension for your grandchild? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting um, point. And you're right, most people do think of pensions as something for retirement. Um, but the main reason is that it's that power of compounding. And also, these days, it's becoming much harder for young people to actually kind of build financial wealth, to have trouble getting onto the housing ladder, student debt. And so actually, when um, you know child finishes university, being, paying into a pension that might not be the front of their minds. So actually, I certainly didn't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, lots of people don't. Yeah. Um, so if if parent or grandparent um, has had the foresight and obviously the ability to be able to put money away for them, this is something that actually can make a big difference at a time when um, you know hadn't the child or grandchild wouldn't necessarily be thinking about it themselves. Okay. Um, are there any disadvantages for, to opening a, a pension for a grandchild? Um, yes. I mean, the main reason is that it's, the money is going to be locked away for obviously a very long time. Um, it's 55 currently, but actually that's going to be rising to the, the age that um, the child babies get money up. 55 it's, being when they can access money. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that's going to be rising to 57 by 2028. Well, that's definitely them because they, they're not going to... Uh, a child born now, I suppose, is not going to... Um, be ready be what 55 by 2028 are they so um yeah, yeah. so i mean and also the, the point is that 
um, actually that age could go even further out mm. because we're all living longer. And so actually um, the age at which people can access their pension could even be later than that. So it's a very long time frame and the money can't be used for other things that, you know, young people want to do, such as getting on the housing ladder or um, and a wedding or university. It can't be used for any mm. other purpose. So that's the main disadvantage. If, for example, you think you actually want to help your grandchild fund one of these costs, like a you know university wedding, housing, whatever, what would be an alternative to opening a pension for them? Um, an alternative you could look at is the junior ISA. It's also tax efficient in the same way as a pension is. Um, and you can put £4,260 away each year for the first 18 years of, of a child's life. But unlike a pension, the child can have access to the money as soon as they turn 18. All those things that we're talking about, university, um, housing ladder, they can have access to the money from the time they turn 18 so they can use it you know, earlier on in their life. But they might not spend it on that. That is the problem. Yeah. And that is definitely one of the potential disadvantages of a junior ISA because lots of parents and grandparents are, you know, unsure about how an eighteen year old is going to react to, you know, a sum of money which could be, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds. You know, that depends on whether or not you think that you're happy to hand over control to your child at that age. Okay, I mean, there's obviously arguments of both and there's obviously quite a few issues with both of these types of accounts. So which one do you pick? Um, Yes, you're right. When I spoke to financial planners about this, they said it really depends on how much you can afford to give into these different vehicles and when you want the child to have access to the money. So, you know, you could be sort of educating your child or grandchild from early age and, you know, the importance of money and the importance of saving. If if you do that, hopefully by the time they get to 18, they will recognise the value of that and not go out and blow the money, Um, in which case junior ISIS would be a useful vehicle for that. Or pensions, as we say, would be very good if you're looking at that long term perspective. Of course, ideally, if you can do both um, and you've got the money to do that, that's perfect because you can sort of um, cross off both the medium and the long term. But it really depends on your circumstances. Okay, thank you, Emma. Some really useful tips on how to give your grandchild financial help sooner or later in life. That's all we've got time for today. But you can read more on growth in Japan value investing and how to build up a nest egg for your grandchild in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.